He is risen. Amen. See, we got some traditionalists here. That's good. I love that. Let's say a prayer. God, we have come to celebrate you and your resurrection today. That you are our risen king. And we understand that that has made a difference in all areas of our lives and society. And as we take these moments to celebrate that, may we be reminded afresh and new, or maybe even here for the first time, how the resurrection matters and makes a difference both universally and for us. So we simply offer this time and space to you in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor here, and I thank you for coming to celebrate Easter with us today. It's great to see you all here and excited to see what God has for us this morning. Now, if you were watching the news this last week, on Monday, many of us watched in horror as the iconic cathedral, Notre Dame, which is called the Heart of Paris, was engulfed by fire. By the next morning, the fire had been extinguished, but the extensive damage had already been done. Since then, over $1 billion has been raised to rebuild that cathedral. Why is this so important? Why can one building be so important to a society and a country? Well, French author Bernard Henry Levy put it this way. It's a symbol of French culture, architecture, and history. Notre Dame de Paris is really one of the beating hearts of the French civilization. How can you rebuild eight or nine centuries of history? How can you rebuild the tears, the whispers, and the memories of a whole country and a whole civilization? Maybe for you, Notre Dame is not important. Or maybe, as I talked to some people last week, You lived for generations, or families of you lived for generations in the shadow of that grand cathedral. But whatever way you look at it, for the nation of France, life has been been altered forever. Yes, the cathedral will be rebuilt. It'll rise from the ashes, but it'll rise in a different way, a new way. I do believe that this building is a powerful metaphor of our lives. And how many of us have experienced the fires of sickness, brokenness, and often stand and look at our lives maybe as a shell, wondering if it's even possible for something to rise from the ashes of our lives, something new, something different. Well, I'm here to tell you today that the resurrection of Jesus says, yes, it is possible. Amen? That from the ashes of your life, whatever has happened to you, God can bring resurrections. Easter has always been a special time for me. And my family had many Easter traditions growing up. We would go to sunrise services, have time together with family. I'd always get a new outfit at Easter. And if you're around the church, you realize I got a new jacket. Just because that's something that's built into me. It's an excuse to buy something new at Easter. When I was younger... By the end of Easter Sunday, the shoes would be scuffed up, the the pants would be grass-stained, and I would have already wrecked my Easter best to pry my parents' horror. And maybe you have Easter traditions, maybe you don't, but either way, every single one of our lives has been impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you might not even realize it. 
The reality that you walk through the doors of a church building this morning is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The epicenter of the Christian faith, ground zero of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, you have not arrived at simply a building. You have arrived at an intersection in life where heaven and earth, the natural and supernatural, history, the present, the future have all collided because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it has transformed the world as we know it. Think about a world without the resurrection of Jesus. There would be no Notre Dame or any church building, as a matter of fact. Even driving here this morning, you probably passed many church buildings. And just a reminder that the church is not a building. The church is people. And people of God who've been transformed by Jesus who are living out his purposes. But imagine a world with no church buildings. No spires. No grand cathedrals. Imagine a world without any of this, because they simply do not exist. The influence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is far more reaching than church buildings. It has brought us music like Johann Sebastian Bach, Handel and the Hallelujah, which I got to go do a sing-along up in Frederick at Christmas time. Imagine those never existing. Or hymns like Amazing Grace, or Crown Him with Many Crown, or even the modern-day songs that we belted out this morning. Imagine none of those having ever existed. Imagine a world without the paintings of Rembrandt, the genius of Michelangelo, the poetry of T.S. Eliot, without writers like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, John Bunyan. Imagine a world without social activists like Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, William Wilberforce. A world without scientists like Galileo, Francis Bacon. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was the underpinnings of all these people's creative and intellectual genius, our world would be forever altered. If you even look at the modern university system in the United States, back to some of the oldest ones like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, they began as seminaries training pastors to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, how far do we wander? And this begs the question, what is it about the death and resurrection of Jesus that has so greatly influenced our world in all aspects of our society? Well, let's take a short trip back about 2,000 years to when Jesus actually lived and was born. According to history, Jesus was born a little over 2,000 years ago in a miraculous way. Think virgin birth, angels, wise men, shepherds, prophecies, Christmas. This is the Christmas story. He was born as a Jew in a small Jewish village and not much is known about his early childhood. But as he grew things began to change. And at the age of 30, he stepped out of obscurity and into three years of supernatural ministry across the nation of Israel. His teachings challenged the spiritual elite. 
His actions brought healing and wholeness to the broken and beaten down of society. During this time, he called 12 people to follow him, his disciples, his apprentices, his students. Now, as Jesus' influence grew, so did opposition against him. The religious leaders couldn't handle him till finally it reached a crescendo when he arrived in Jerusalem just one week ago on Palm Sunday. Last week, Andrew Black spoke very eloquently about that. And so if you want to check out Palm Sunday, check out that message. And for a host of reasons, the religious leaders began to plot the execution of Jesus. Maybe it was power and control, jealousy, but whatever it was, five days after his triumphal entry, he is now being tortured and brutally crucified on a Roman cross. If you want to know injustice, just look at Jesus. Because he had done no wrong. But he was now dying a criminal's death on a criminal's cross. Imagine the disillusionment of the people who were closest to Jesus as they watched him being assassinated for nothing that he had done wrong. The hopes of a king, a savior, nailed to a cross. Have you ever been there? Feeling betrayed, disillusioned, hopes dashed, fears realized, maybe those heart palpitations as as something comes undone in your life. I've been there. And I imagine this is the feelings of Jesus' followers as they watch their hopes, their future, their plans, being crucified, tortured, and killed. After Jesus died on the cross, his body was taken off of that cross and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. A stone was rolled in front of that tomb and Saturday the next day was called the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day to focus on God, a day to pause. During that next day, Jesus' body lay in that tomb, lifeless, beaten, bloodied, a broken corpse. Now, as the sun rises on Sunday, things begin to stir. And this is where we pick up the story in Luke 24. This story is told in different Gospels in the New Testament, but we're going to just look at the story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, so the first day of the week would have been Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinner. Sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. 
But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Angels, an empty tomb, a proclamation of a resurrection. You can see this story is a little too much to believe. The women believed, but when they ran back to his closest followers, they looked at all this like nonsense. This makes no sense to us. We looked at Jesus being crucified and utterly disseminated on that cross. He was just destroyed. We watched him be buried. And now you're telling me two days later, he is resurrected. Impossible. How could this happen? In the same way that if you have kids, you wouldn't believe that they made their bed without being asked. It's hard to believe in the resurrection. In the same way that it'd be hard to believe that you won the lottery or did something else impossible, it's really hard to comprehend the resurrection of Jesus. When the women told the disciples, props to all the women, because they seemed like they believed right away, all the disciples didn't make a move. Only Peter. Only Peter. In another gospel, it says Peter and John, but here it says Peter got up, ran to the tomb, and he looked inside. And he sees the strips of cloth that were used to wrap up Jesus neatly folded on the slab of rock. Even Jesus knew how to make his bed after the resurrection, kids. And what does Peter do? What does Peter do? He wonders to himself, what happened? What's going on? He still wasn't comprehending what had happened. And it's okay to question. It's okay to not believe right away in something so incredible as the resurrection of Jesus. But over time, all of his closest followers and many more came to believe in Jesus. Not one of them, after his resurrection, decided not to follow him. Because all of them saw the resurrected Christ and followed him through the rest of their life. Looking back, we can see the reliability of the resurrection and that both history and the Bible point towards the reliability that truly Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. There is no substantial argument against the resurrection of Jesus. There is only disagreement on who he was and what his death and resurrection accomplished. But history and the Bible both say that Jesus lived and truly died and rose from the dead. There were countless witnesses to Jesus' public execution. And on the other side, there were countless witnesses to his resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 about how many people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. I don't know why he doesn't mention the women, but he was seen by the women too. But after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. 
Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. What is the apostle Paul doing here? He's name dropping. He's dropping all sorts of people's names and saying, don't just believe me, believe the countless people that have seen the resurrected Jesus. I'm going to tell you their names. I'm going to tell you there's countless people and you can go check it out for yourself. If this had happened today, it would be all over Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, hashtag resurrection, hashtag Jesus is alive, hashtag selfie with Jesus, because there were so many people that had seen him that it would have been everywhere. There would have been no such thing as an exclusive story about Jesus's resurrection, because everywhere you would be going, you'd be hearing about somebody who had seen Jesus resurrected. You could not get away from it. Both history and the Bible point back that Jesus lived, he died, and rose from the dead. And I'd encourage you to study that for yourself if you've never done that. But if you just dismiss the Bible and you dismiss history as reliable sources, you also have to contemplate the number of transformed lives because of the resurrection of Jesus. There is millions, if not billions of people who have been transformed because of the resurrection of Jesus. Sitting in this room, there are many stories that I have heard of how Jesus has personally transformed your lives. That you have encountered Jesus through the pages of scripture, through the testimony of a friend, through a supernatural encounter with the risen Christ. We have those stories right here in our midst. And if we go all the way back to the earliest followers of Jesus, they have the same stories. What takes the closest followers of Jesus from cowering in the shadows only days earlier to proclaiming the risen Christ in boldness, without fear, and even with threats of persecution and death, nothing would stop them from proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that? Because they had encountered the risen Christ. You do not die for a lie. You do not die for a lie. And all except one of the 12 followers of Jesus died because of their faith in Christ. The apostle John is the one anomaly, but he was boiled in oil for his belief in Christ and then exiled to an island and he still didn't deny Christ. But everyone else was executed because of their belief in Jesus and up to the even point of death, they did not die the death and resurrection of Jesus because they had seen him and had transformed their lives. Within a few years of the resurrection, this news, this belief, this movement about Christ spreads from Jerusalem across the, the known world, the Roman Empire. Churches are springing up all over the place as people put their faith in Christ. And I cannot even begin to count the stories up to modern day time of how Jesus is still transforming lives. Dr. Francis Collins who's the director of NIH, National Institute of Health, right here in Bethesda, Maryland, came to the same belief in Jesus. Listen to the story here. Well, in the home where I grew up, 
uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in, in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible. Uh, and many other things, including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe, something that makes you think the Creator must have been a mathematician. That brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. From atheism to a belief in the death, resurrection, and person of Jesus. 
So I ask you, just as Francis Collins was asked by this woman as he stood by her bedside in the hospital, what do you believe? What do you believe? And do you know why you believe it? Have you taken the time to investigate what you believe and why you believe it? I've concluded from my own studies that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he did. And once again, this brings us back to the question, why does the resurrection personally matter to you and I? We can talk how it's affected history and culture and look back and say, wow, we we know that it happened. But what about you and I? How does it affect us? Well, I just want to give you two ideas. First, the resurrection gives hope beyond this life. The resurrection gives hope beyond this life. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 22 to, to 25. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We are given this hope when we are saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. I have four children. And over the last few days, they decided to share some sickness with me. And part of the sickness is this achiness in my bones. And these pains that when you go to get out of bed, you feel like you're creaking. Maybe you're at a point in life that you don't need to be sick to feel that when you're getting out of bed. Maybe it's just pain all the time. But even those creaks and groans in our bodies are pointing to something more. Have you ever had the opportunity to walk through a woods on a windy day as big trees sway in the breeze and the winds and they creak and they groan and it's almost like you can hear creation longing for something more, something beyond. Is your body crying out? Yes, it is. Is the world crying out? Yes, it is. For something more. It's waiting in hope that this is not the end, that there is something beyond the here and now. And the resurrection of Jesus says that we can wait patiently and confidently that one day Jesus is going to take us to be with him And make everything that is wrong right. And give us a brand new, not only body, but a brand new heaven and earth. Revelation 21.4 puts it like this. He will wipe every tear from their eye. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. There's a day coming that you won't have that back pain. You won't have that knee pain. You won't have those groans and aches and suffering if you're a follower of Jesus because he says that at one point in the future, he will make all that is wrong right because of the resurrection of Jesus. A little over a week ago, I performed a funeral for a beautiful, kind, caring woman from the neighborhood here who struggled with many things as many of us do throughout her life, but she found hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And as I was able to tell and share with people at her funeral, 
that when we're faced with grief and loss and disappointment and disillusionment, when we wrestle with pain and heartache and all that life brings to us, we have hope beyond the here and now. The resurrection shows us that even in death, when darkness looms, there is still light. The resurrection matters because it gives us hope beyond the here and now. The resurrection matters because it also makes the impossible possible. Our lives begin believing anything is possible. We have these wild dreams and we're told we can do anything, be anything. But then we're faced with the hard reality of setbacks, challenges, limitations, and disappointments. Over time, those dreams begin to fade and sometimes even get crushed and snuffed out. Just think about Santa and the Easter Bunny. Many of you don't believe in Santa and the Easter Bunny anymore. I can't believe that. Right, kids? Because at some point in your history, you believed in the impossible. And throughout life, it has a way of whittling us down. I'm not bursting any bubbles this morning. But at some point, we can get whittled down and begin to become pessimistic. And lose hope. And become cold-hearted. We can look at life and only see death. But my hope is that we come like Peter did. And he peers into this empty tomb and he doesn't see death. We can become like those women who hear these angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He isn't here. He is risen. That even in the impossible situations in our lives, the resurrection speaks life. I wonder what was going on in Peter's mind that morning. I wonder what was going on as he contemplated this reality of the resurrection. Maybe he stood there like some of us this morning and wrestled with these ideas. Wrestled with rational and irrational. Supernatural and natural. Possible and impossible. Are you wrestling this morning? Maybe you're wrestling right now with the resurrection of Jesus and whether or not it really happened. Or maybe you're wrestling with something in your own life that needs to be resurrected. All of us have experienced death in different ways. Maybe it's brokenness, pain, dreams. And when you look at that area of your life, you think there is no possible way that this could be resurrected. I can tell you this morning that Easter tells us there is a God of resurrections. And even in the most difficult situations, God can bring new life. When we peer into the tomb on Easter Sunday, instead of seeing a lifeless corpse, we encounter an empty tomb because Jesus has resurrected. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. When you receive Jesus, does this mean that life becomes perfect? No. There are some bells that cannot be unrung. And there are some broken things that cannot be put back together. 
But God is able to take even the brokenness in our lives and make something new and beautiful out of it. It's like a tapestry or a stained glass window that when you only see a part of it, you think this is meaningless. This makes no sense. And how could life come from this? But when God puts it into his lens and his perspective, he can make something beautiful even out of our brokenness. Today we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And each one of us is in need of a personal resurrection. For those of you who have already said yes to Jesus, maybe there's an area in your life that Jesus is wanting to remind you this morning that the impossible is still possible. And for those of you who have not said yes to Jesus yet, God wants to bring you from death to life, from hopeless to hope-filled, from darkness to light. He wants to bring inner transformation through his resurrection. I'd like us to simply bow our heads for a moment and take a moment to contemplate for ourselves what the resurrection means to you. How the resurrection matters for you. Maybe there's an area in your life that you are crying out for and God is saying, I want to bring a resurrection there. And maybe today you're here and you have never said yes to Jesus. And if you have never said yes to Jesus, please know that he is a gentleman. He does not force himself on anybody but he simply puts out an invitation to all and says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anybody hears my voice and opens that door and invites me in, I will come into their life and dine with them and become their Lord, their King, their Savior. The invitation is there for all of us. And if you are desiring to say yes to Jesus for the first time this morning, I'd simply ask you to slip your hand up and say, by the simple act, I'm wanting to say yes to Jesus this morning. Each one of us is in need of a resurrection. And Father, as I pray for each one of us this morning, we live on this side of eternity, but in light of of 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus. But that resurrection is making a difference and has made a difference up until this very day. And it has influenced cultures and societies and all that we know and exist. But I pray that today it would become personal for us, that the resurrection would make a difference for us. Because when we receive you into our lives, you come alive in us and you bring new life where there's only death. And I pray that each one of us would experience the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ for ourselves this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.